this is the book report. You do this every time. Every I start recording time. and it kicked us into a new screen and somehow apparently still it wasn't recording. I swear it. The only things this app doesn't record is the best things we talk about. I know. I hate everything. <laughs> like, why am I even trying? We have these great intros, really, really good off-the-cuff discussions, and they get lost. I'm so upset. And it took us 30 minutes to get this to work today. Uh, well. Yeah. We might as well just quit and go home at this point. Yeah. Just like everyone yeah, listening home. to the podcast, you just, just quit. Turn goodbye. it off, go home. Thanks for trying. It's a wrap. Good work, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So, in what has probably been our third or fourth final episode ever, that's Steven. The other guy's Joel, drinking pineapple hard seltzer like a weirdo. In my defense, I attempted to grab a Modelo, but... Honestly, I don't know if that's like that much better, simply because you are not a citizen of Mexico. So I'm not sure why you're drinking Modelo. Um, first of all, that's racist, I think. No, Second I don't all... think it is. <laughs> Second of all, I happen to like Modelo. And third of all, I didn't buy any of the alcohol in my fridge right now. So Oh, you know what? I take everything <laughs> back. If it's all free alcohol, it's all good alcohol. And I salute you, sir drinking whatever comes your way exactly i had like um a friend over uh to do like a fire pit thing several like a week ago at least um and she had like her neighbors come with her um and they all brought alcohol that's been in my fridge since then so it's nothing i would have bought so those are yeah. good neighbors you should make friends right? with them i mean I, right. I know both of them it was just like oh hey more people and beer <laughs> and apparently pineapple seltzer so yeah whatever whatever, whatever works yeah well hey um so last week uh we talked at length and shit on uh the left behind series for about an hour <laughs> and joel made a pregnancy announcement so if you haven't listened to last week's episode you should definitely check that out yeah i mean it's it's medical scientific breakthroughs and i'm really happy that my family is expanding it's just a it's an interesting time <laughs> but because we have a lot of other Christian lit, and once again, I hope you're hearing my implied air quotes, to discuss, um, I figured we should probably do some things we'd like in Christian lit to break up the um, attacking things. Might as well. Yeah. So today, we're talking about C.S. Lewis. Because Is that? C.S. Lewis? Is that like a, a pen name? Is that Mark Twain? You know, I honestly have no idea what the C and the S stand for. Clive Staples. Wait, really? Yeah, the only reason I know that is because I dated a girl in college who named her car Clive Staples after <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Well, and we do not need to go any further down that road. I was just going to say at least she named her car. I've had to, right. like, it's been like pulling teeth to get people to name their car sometimes. And I'm like, they just perform better if you name them. Wait, just you named your car? Yeah, my car's named Leela. Of course it is. That she means only you has need... one eye. Does she actually? I mean, she has a moonroof. So. <laughs> See, I was going to say that actually means you need to knock out one of the headlights. Sorry <laughs> to tell you. Well, one of them is like very like fogged over that I need to clean. So it works for several ways. But yeah. Okay. Well, Elaborate drama references for the win. What's your Absolutely. car's name? It doesn't have one. What? You got to name it. I do not. You have to name your cars. I they perform better true. and they're nicer to you when you name them. 
science. I don't know. I think we're okay. 100% science. You say so. (laughs) Anyways, um, I'm sure anyone listening to this or, you know, that can speak English has heard of C.S. Lewis because they've heard of at least The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia. But the man wrote a lot more than that. Yeah, he was a monster. He wrote a lot of um, nonfiction work that was like theological in nature. He wrote sci-fi. Um, there's something else he wrote that's escaping me right now. But he was very, he was surprisingly prolific um, for how little he's known for. Yeah, basically. I mean, he, he held academic, like scholarly and like professor positions at both Oxford and Cambridge. The dude was way too smart and um, kind of like, way too big in the world for a while and he was like best friends with tolkien so dude was awesome uh yeah he was he was the goat he really was we talked about this i think at one podcast that um tolkien and lewis had like this strange one-upsmanship buddy relationship and there's a famous story of the fact that they both crashed a uh party that I think only one of them might have been invited to, but they both crashed the party in elaborate polar bear costumes. It was not a fancy dress party. They just did it for absolutely no reason. And so these people were amazing. Oh, yeah. Best friendship of all time, clearly. Yeah, like that's like squad goals. And I don't hate myself for saying that. I should, though. I hate you for saying that. Don't (laughs) worry. I really do. I really, really do. But uh, I like their relationship because they weren't afraid to call each other out for things they thought were stupid. We've discussed before how Tolkien thought that allegory was the lowest form of art. And um, C.S. Lewis was a like he did his doctoral studies on allegory in English literature. So, you know, they had their opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia says his notable works are The Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, The Allegory of Love, The Screwtape Letters, The Space Trilogy, Till We Have Faces, Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life. Those were his notable works, but he has written way too many things. Yeah, just way too many works. Things like he wrote wrote books called Heaven and Hell, The Great Divorce... I read a, or didn't read, I listened to an audiobook uh, that was like his autobiography or his biography or something. And it yeah. talked about how he had like stubby little fingers that actually made it kind of hard for him to, to write on a typewriter, but he just kept plunking along and churning out some of the classics of English literature. That's fun. So, Appar- don't uh, let your dreams it, be dreams. What's was your it the Surprised by Joy um, memoir? I couldn't tell you. I really couldn't. I listened to it like five or six years ago. Apparently, they, uh, him and Lewis, him and Tolkien created while they were at Oxford, while they were professors at Oxford or scholars at Oxford, they created a f- informal literary discussion group called the Inklings, um, and it uh, had C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Owen Barfield in it. Um, I don't really know the other people. I vaguely think I know Charles Williams. How would you like to be a member of a, um, like a club like that? And then you're basically just the no name who sits in the room. Right. Oh, wow. No, there's a lot, there's a large, a lot larger list. Um, but I'm not recognizing anybody on here. Um, Lord David Cecil. That sounds kind of familiar. Percy Bates. 
Roy Roy Campbell. All of these sound mm. vaguely familiar, but I can't place them. So no, I don't want to click on all these, these Wikipedia names. links. But they're all like British poets and authors and playwrights, apparently. Yeah. Okay. So that's hilarious. Sure. Anyways, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> We've gone on yeah, Wikipedia you... a whole live. <laughs> well, what else are you going to do? Yeah, fill right. the time somehow. So um, why don't we just go with what uh, we, we started this season off reading um, chapter by chapter the first of the space trilogy called Out of the Silent Planet. We both since finished that book, and we want to talk about that. But until we, before we get into that and spoil it, why don't we talk about some of our other favorite works by Lewis? Sure. So I think, um, and I don't even know how to categorize that because his works are very different from one another. Right. I so the Screw Tape Letters is okay to me. Um, it's See, interesting. That's my thing it's too. fine. I'm not a, uh, there's a point, and again, this is getting into the Out of the Silent Planet discussion, but the, the epilogue or the postscript and Out of the Silent Planet felt very much like the screw tape letters. And I remembered how bored I yes. was reading those. Yeah. So not necessarily my favorite. I actually really like his book called The Great Divorce. Um, okay. I don't know if you've read that, but it's, it's a really interesting look on the idea of heaven and hell. And it's, it's very well written. It throws some interesting um, ideas into it that aren't necessarily like the traditional views of heaven and hell. Uh, and it's, it's just written in a really, really cool way. Um, so I like that one quite a bit. And then if we're looking at the Chronicles of Narnia books, I think you're the same way. I don't actually like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, okay. I don't, I don't know if it's just the way he was writing when he wrote that one. I don't like that one. I don't like uh, the first one in the series that's called Magician's what? Nephew. The Magician's Nephew, thank you. And um, the one that I do like quite a bit, um, oh, what is that one? It's it's the one, I think it's The Horse and His Boy. Really? Okay. I really like that one. Yeah. We have almost yeah. inverse opinions. <laughs> My favorite in the series, though, is The Last Battle. Okay, the last That's, battle. okay we agree on that then. Um, <laughs> but I hate, I mean, this was a little bit of... Uh, because of the way I read them, I read them in chronological order of the uh, instead of in publication order, which yeah. he prefers. Uh, the author he said he prefers them in close to publication order. So there's different orders you're supposed to read them in, but whatever. I read them in chronological order, um, which goes um, goes the magician's nephew, then the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, then Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dan, Silver Chair. Um, and actually, no, it goes Magician's Nephew, Lion, Witch, Wardrobe, then The Horse and His Boy, then Prince Caspian, Don Trader, Silver Chair, then The Last Battle. Um, mm -hmm. Because The Horse and His Boy takes place during The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Yeah. And so I hated The Horse and His Boy the first time I read it. Um, going back as an adult and rereading them, I appreciated it a lot more, but I couldn't get over the taste of when I was a kid reading it and being like, I don't okay. care about any of this okay. i want to get to the the kids i know and their cool adventures um so that's a little bit of yeah and i really 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 liked the voyage of the dawn trader other than the last battle that had been my favorite uh okay. and i was so Fair. mad at the movie ruining that um yeah i think I like all the of the books are great because they've they've each got a slightly different flavor which is kind of nice in a, right. in a series like that 
And for it to be an adventure novel that takes like it, it does so many crazy like fantasy things that are like well beyond um, what most fantasies would even attempt to. It's got alternate realities, and it's got like uh, uh, like like the 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 pools and and the magician's nephew lead to different worlds, and so it's like a world mm-hmm. between worlds. Then it's I mean it's all allegory, obviously, but then it's got like heaven and hell mythos it it does a whereas the last whereas our last episode left behind they tried to just like translate revelations into modern times um the last battle took a very uh obscure look at it and put a version of revelations into another world's like alternate dimensions thing and it isn't terrible (laughs) like so uh like it's really really good and so it's just the fact that you can do all of that with a ostensibly a fantasy story about kids transported to a magical world and a, talking animals and stuff. Like, it's crazy that you could do all that and still get theological points across without people hating you. And that's why I kind of disagree with Tolkien, because Tolkien always said allegory is worthless. But I think that C.S. Lewis did it like in an interesting way, maybe not a like it was obvious what he was doing. There was right. never any doubt that he was telling, like in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, he was telling the story of, of Jesus very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was and still an interesting. Matthew, he tells creation, the last battle, yeah. he tells the apocalypse. Like it's very clear what's happening. It's really easy to figure out if you're at all familiar with, with Christianity in any shape or form, but he does it in a way that's still really interesting to read. It's yeah. kind of like when you um, watch a Disney movie, it's obviously for children. It's full of bright colors and songs that are meant to be entertaining to children. However, it's still fun for adults to watch because it's well done and there are fun sex jokes hidden in all of it. So, you know, and it's it's there's a there's a difference between like an homage and an allegory and a beating you over the head with something, which is what Mm -hmm. most Christian lit does is it's just like we're going to tell you Christian stories, but. If you think about it, as we talked a little bit last time, Christianity um, kind of defined Western culture for most of history. Uh, And so every story is largely a good versus evil. So many stories you learned in school are a um, uh, – there's a Jesus stand-in or a Messiah figure because that's how stories are told. You have to have somebody who sacrifices themselves. Like all of that happens all the time. So doing it – and just taking a little bit more respect for the source material is totally worthwhile if you do it well. But so many people just don't do it well. And yeah, and I think it's, it's – it's, I don't know if it's necessarily laziness. I think that it's a lot of – and this might be um, treading on thin ice. But I think a lot of people who are writers or authors think of themselves as these very brilliant minds, these literary geniuses. Or they just look at themselves as like, oh, I've got a story to tell. I should tell it. But then you look at C.S. Lewis, for example, and C.S. Lewis, yeah, he wrote great stories, but he wrote great stories because the man was brilliant. You know, he was he had a very successful professional life apart from being an author. Like, although we remember him as an author, there are a lot of people who probably remembered C.S. Lewis as their professor, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's worth remembering um, because he wasn't just like writing and blowing smoke he was he was writing from a very very 
uh, impressive academic pedigree. Right. It wasn't it, and where the, the difference between people like C.S. Lewis and people like um, the Tim LaHaye uh, <laughs> is oh, well. one is attempting to write a story to like very obviously prove a point and say something. And the other is writing a story that it like for the story's sake itself. And hopefully it will say something. The the goal isn't the message necessarily. It's the story itself. And I feel like that's the biggest distinction between good and bad authors is some people are writing to make a point and some people are writing to tell a story. And if you're trying to tell a story, you're always going to come out better than if you're trying to make a point. Um, so yeah, well, <laughs> uh, other, um, other writings we like about his, we talked about the screw type letters. Neither of us are big fans of that. Um, um, what was this? The, just going back to the the Narnia for a second, you've seen all the movies, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you want them to make more? Because I really loved the Silver Chair, and obviously we both loved the Last Battle, and I would love for them to try again with this series and like commit to making all the books. Yeah. So that I would agree with. I get kind of frustrated. So the Chronicles of Narnia: Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has been remade a couple of times. And I wish they would stop remaking it and instead explore some of the other books. Because, like the ones they haven't made, yeah. Yeah, because I, I'm i like you. When they made The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it was really good. It was great. And then it was really good. Then they went and made The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Prince Caspian, and both of those were okay. Well, Prince um, Caspian was all right, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader just angered me because they got the yeah. exact opposite point that the book made. Like, yeah, it was, and whatever. Yeah, got the wrong but, moral lesson from the story, so okay, good. Have fun with that. Yeah, but I was excited at the idea that they were going to continue on with the stories and tell the rest of them, and then they never did. And that has mm-hmm. been very disappointing to me because I'm like you. I would love to see the silver chair. I want to see those scenes where they're living in the, the giant's house. That seems yes. pretty cool. All the um, visuals in the silver chair, like the Voyage of the Dawn Trader, kind of a boring story visually. Silver chair is brilliant. There's yeah. so many cool things you could do visually with that movie. Yeah, it's real neat. And now that we've actually brought CGI into right. the fray, you can you can actually make it happen. So I would like to see that. And then the last battle is just such a poignant story that I want to see it translated. And into death and loss are things that people are finally starting to like openly explore into kids' movies. Yeah. Um, and so that'd be really fun. And then the Magician's Nephew. I know you don't like that one as much, but. You could like take it in a sci-fi almost direction and mix science fiction and fantasy with that one. You could do so much with these if you, you can. just stop revisiting the same ones. I agree. But that's, you know, Hollywood will continue making new Spider-Man movies until people mm. stop going to see them. So mm. here we all are. Okay. How about his nonfiction stuff? We both mentioned Mere Christianity. I think mm-hmm. I've read that one and I've read one of his others that I cannot think of the uh, – maybe it was The Case for Christ or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but it's a, it's, it, this was a written as kind of, um, radio plays, right. Or like an a, a adaptation of his radio, uh, uh, like almost sermons mm-hmm. back in the, 40s. yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. It's like him just giving an entire treatise on theology and love it. Like it's just really, even if you're not a, even if not a believer, 
reading this will give you a uh, like an insight into the mindset of what the what faith is supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and if you are a believer, it's such a good like. It doesn't. It wasn't written, and it wasn't given as an attack on the modern church. But it is such a good, just like, almost rebuke of so many things that the church gets itself involved in and tries to do nowadays. And so it's a really interesting book. Um, yeah, because uh, uh, parts of it he's attacking Nazi Germany because this is right before, right after the war. Um, it's just very interesting. It's very interesting. That may have gone into a case for Christ instead of the, uh, the I get the two confused, but one of them he he talks about uh, the way faith is is twisted and the, the law is twisted, um, uh, and he's obviously talking about Nazi Germany. And I thought that's that's a passage I'm going to try to look that up now. Passage I can't get out of my head, but I don't want to get it wrong. No, talk that's about fine. Something while I'm well, I'm looking. <laughs> sure. So obviously Mere Christianity is like his most well-known nonfiction book. And that one is really, really good. A lot of people find value in it. And I personally like it quite a bit. Um, some of the others, I haven't read as much of his stuff as I probably should. But um, The Screwtape Letters is interesting. It's not my favorite. Uh, the Problem of Pain is a is a good one just because of the subject that it explores, because I know that's kind of the thing that tends to turn most people off from religion. And so anytime an author addresses it, it's usually a really interesting conversation. Even if their answer isn't um, satisfying for you, it's still a very interesting uh, thought exercise to right. go through like what pain is why it's caused, how it affects us, and what might be the purpose for it. Because whether you believe in a God, whether you don't, pain still exists. And so there still is the question of like, okay, well, does it mean anything? Or is it just a random happenstance of the universe? And I always think that's a very interesting question to explore. There's even a joke about, not even a joke, like it's a reference about that in in Veep, um, the HBO show Veep. Uh, right. Uh, there's a character who says uh, somebody who talks about their mother has just died, and there's a character who says, "Have you read C.S. Lewis's uh, book on grief?" Um, I'm more partial to the, the 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 Chronicles of Narnia, but he has some great things to say about how to deal with loss. <laughs> and it's just like this Man. throwaway offhand joke, but it's 100% true. Is that if you have read his fiction and realize how great of a writer he is, he has some amazing things to say about how to deal with grief. Yeah. And I found that quote I was looking for. It is for the case for Christianity. This is for the talks. It might have also been reproduced in the book, but I can't remember. But it's just the – he says it's the idea of um, there has to be an absolute right or there has to be a moral right. So he says uh, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone, and I believe they were right. If they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. What was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing? which the Nazis at the bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced. If they had no such notion of what we mean by right, then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. And it's just this idea that if you completely throw away any concept of inherent right and wrong, then like you, you can't stand for anything. And it, it, that, that's what he used to open a whole chapter on other things. But I just love that 
like logical flow in the way that he writes his nonfiction stuff. And it's almost like he's setting up a mathematical proof for a theorem. It's really fun. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Cool. All right. Um, well, we've else? exhausted, we have exhausted my okay. knowledge of his nonfiction works at that point. Um, gotcha. There's a lot of stuff I just, you know, you don't get around to because it's old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was li- like, he lived through world war two and was writing at that time. He died in what? The early, early sixties. Yeah. 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 Um, so he didn't get to see the moon landing, but he wrote an entire trilogy about exploring our solar system, which we have begun and finished reading the first book in. If you've been paying attention to the episodes so far this season, we've given kind of a chapter by chapter overview till about the halfway point, And we're about to spoil the rest of it because we got bored of doing that a few chapters at a time. <laughs> It's also not a hard book to read, and so it's kind of difficult to read it two chapters at a right. time, but it's very easy to read half of a book in, like, a day. Yeah, I think we both read <laughs> the entire end of the book, like, today or last night, and so yeah. um, it's a very quick read, and I, I kinda, I'm I really excited about finishing the trilogy now. Uh, I, that, I guess that was going to be my first question to ask Stephen if you wanted to even continue reading them, um, and I gave my Sure, I can one. answer that. Yeah, um, okay. it ended much stronger than it began. I, yes, you know, very much. I enjoyed so. it. Other than the postscript, which just was unnecessary. But well, the postscript was interesting because I think every author who writes uh, fantasy or sci-fi has a inclination to make it seem as this this is a real accounting of real events. Right. And um, C.S. Lewis did that as his postscript. He was like. And by the way, this story is totally real and yeah. everyone should pay attention. And it was like, okay, I mean, that's great. It was probably inventive when you did it in the 50s, but it's kind of weird now. Yeah, it just felt out of place and it didn't, I don't think it meshed with the rest. It, it We'll get into that in a second. Um, oh, shoot. So when we, oh man, this is a good time to talk about it, though. The way he ended it. Can I just okay. say one thing? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so he actually does end the book or he ends the story basically. Mm-hmm. with like this perfect literary end and then the next chapter starts off with and that would have been a great way to end the story in a normal book but <laughs> and that actually made me laugh out no loud. that was good i like I, again i mean i jumped in and i saw that it was the end and i started the postscript and i was like okay this is just going to be like editor's notes kind of things or you know like the appendix at the end of some books and then he went into that and i was like okay that's funny but um then it kept going and it just kept going and it just kept going and right. it stopped caring really quickly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's, all right. Anyways, uh, you can go back to what you're saying. I was just going to say, if you don't want any spoilers, um, you can duck out now and tune in next week where we talk about either the rest of the Christian works of nonfiction we've read or what I'm really looking forward to and talk about the strange phenomenon that is Christian horror. Um, you can tune in at Twitter at book underscore pod, Facebook at book report podcast and Instagram at the book report pod with underscores between all the words. But otherwise, let's just kind of give an overview of the whole story and then spoil the rest of it. Um, for those who are still around. So we left off at chapter like 10, um, in our earlier spoilers of discussion of it. <laughs> So you want to give a quick rundown of where we were before we both started rereading it or finished reading it? So if I remember correctly, 
Um, the main character, whose name is Ransom, had ended up on the planet of Mars called Malacandra. And, and he doesn't know it's Mars. He has no idea. He's very confused. He's a very confused yeah. man. He was and just then, on like a walking tour of the English countryside, and we thought, and we still, he still might be a stand-in for Tolkien because he's like a literature professor and all that stuff. Right. And he's we, literally Tolkien. Yeah. The, Lewis may have been making fun of Tolkien with this character. But Which yeah, he gets himself stuck on Mars. <laughs> yeah, he gets kidnapped, ends up on Mars, and then um, the people who kidnap him, it seems as if they're trying to sacrifice him to the the creatures the that live on Mars. Savage natives. Right, the savage natives. And um, so the savage natives basically make an appearance, and then Ransom, the main character, ends up like hightailing it the heck out of there, running as fast as he can. And as he does that, he encounters another type of being that seems pretty chill. And giant so then river he, otters. Yeah, giant river otters. So then he just teams up with the giant river otter, no questions asked. And then he goes and lives with them for like a month. And it's honestly, probably longer. Like it says, probably it's like, longer. It kind of alludes to it's only like a month, but he also learns almost their entire language. And even yeah, a linguist, it's even a while. if he's just trying to be nice to his friend Tolkien, nobody learns an alien language in a month. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty impressive. And what's more impressive is that that's the entire first half of the book. That's all that happens. Yeah. He's kidnapped, he ends up on Mars, and he hangs out with river otters. And the river otter thing isn't even really explained. It's just oh like... Oh gosh, yes. The fact that none of the characters' description, like none of the alien race descriptions actually even happen to like post the halfway point in the book was a yep. little bit annoying. Because yeah, Tolkien, I'm oh, not Tolkien. Lewis has these very vivid descriptions of characters when he wants to, but he refused to give it to us because he wanted. I, I feel like he wanted this book. He wanted everything to feel extremely alien, and it did because he waited so long to give us descriptions of things. Yeah. So that was the first half of the book. Do you want yeah. me to explain the rest of the book, or do you uh, want to? We do can. That? Yeah, we can both do it together now. Um, sure. But yeah. So chilling with uh, these otters and then he finally can talk to them and they he finds out that there are three races that are all sentient and like share this utopian ish world together um and they're not actually savages they're actually all pretty smart or at least one race is really smart um one race is very artistic and one race is like very engineering and um also artistic, but in like physical things instead of language. Uh, so he learns about the world and he starts to learn about this like mystical side of the world or um, a higher plane of existence and slowly figures out that he's there because uh, the god of this planet. Um, no. Or no. The, I would say okay. caretaker. Yeah. Less, like, less... pseudo-omniscient caretaker of the world. I, 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 I'm using the term god because the way I immediately understood it is it's a fourth world god, if you read DC Comics. Um, it is oh, that's a... fun. The book itself just, like, consistently refutes the idea that it's a god. Right, right. It's it's like a comic book, though, version of God. They th This creature and others like it, each planet except for, or I mean, yes, Earth, we find out, does have one. But each planet has one. Um, but they exist in, in, they call it heaven. They exist in this other plane of existence where they can, like, talk to each other. And they can, but they have their own planets they can go to um, and kind of be there. So they're almost like fourth dimensional beings. Um 
they're just like right at a level above everybody else and they care and they live a lot longer than everything else and as the creatures on the planet say they don't die and they don't eat anything and they don't have babies (laughs) so it was going back to what we were talking about with like allegory um this planet in my mind as i was reading it i was like i think that what c.s lewis is essentially doing is he's writing his vision of what a planet would have behaved like before the fall before like evil entered the world yes it feels very it feels very perfect it feels very purgatory like almost i know purgatory is not perfect but it feels very like this is a world untouched by or un uncorrupted period um right everyone's allowed to develop other ways and then that and so that was interesting i was more interested in the book as we started learning things and then when you finally start talking to the main guy and you uh the the caretaker character and you hear the history of his own world and the fact that there was another and you sort of got this when they were walking through a petrified forest at one point and one of his friends is telling him how uh the there used to be a, a fourth race on the planet that were bird-like, but they were all killed. Um, and you finally get the caretaker's version of what happened, and you realize that this isn't a perfect utopian world. Like this is a world that's been through crap, and there's a bigger story going on somewhere in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really got incredibly intrigued in the book. Like, um, and then that's when they finally started giving you the the reason for the title out of the silent planet and um, the definitions of where they were. That's when you finally find out they're at yeah. Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when and that whole, that, that whole uh, interaction between ransom and then Oya Rusa or whatever the, the demigod's name is, mm-hmm. was just really fascinating because you're basically getting a look at cosmic history uh, as told by someone who had kind of lived, who had lived through it, but wasn't like that interested in telling you the details, which was kind of neat. And um, he obviously understood a lot of what was happening, but didn't feel like explaining it in any way, shape or form, other than alluding to the fact that it was like this monumental cosmic struggle between two parties. And that's, it's kind of like laying the groundwork for what I assume is going to be the main point of conflict in the next couple of books and i agree with you it's it's a very cool very interesting thing give me one second one mississippi two mississippi three mississippi four mississippi five mississippi six mississippi seven mississippi eight mississippi nine mississippi welcome back sorry um my roommate came in and I couldn't tell if he could get the door open or something because I stopped hearing him, but he was just being respectful and being quiet because he knew I was on a podcast. Well, that's what you do for him. (laughs) There you go. That's how it usually goes. Right. Uh, So, yeah, the, the, the fact that you, you learn that uh, earth had one of these things as well, a long time ago. Pseudo, pseudo demigods. Yes. And then it attacked Mars um, it got bent, as they call it, it went evil, attacked Mars or um, Malachondria, uh, killed off an entire race and would have killed the rest if they didn't like terraform the planet, which was something we were fascinated about in the first early chapters, talking about how the water was hot and everything was really tall. 
um, and gravity seemed strange and the weather made no sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And we find out way later in the book that that's all because Mars has been terraformed so that there is a chance to live because Earth's demigod thing had tried to freeze it. And it's just like so amazing that it was told that well that we could see what was happening but not understand it. Yeah. And so basically there was a and this is how I got it because again this thing was told very esoterically to a person who could barely speak their language. The story we are given is that um the earth caretaker god thing went mad, went evil. Um attacked Mars and wanted to control all the worlds. Uh and then there was like a war in heaven and they had to bind him and throw him back down to earth which they now call the silent planet because none of the like messenger beings can go there and come back and they can't hear anything from earth's caretaker anymore yeah that was very interesting yeah and so like there's all this discussion with and they get into it a little bit and even the last line of the postscript um alludes to the fact that they may be traveling through time in later books and they get into the fact that the um the fourth world beings the uh caretaker things don't experience time the same way or allude to that because they talk about how this all happened well before there was even so i actually had a conversation with my wife about this last night so um, it was really interesting how C.S. Lewis described the different levels of omniscience because he basically said, like, uh, if you are a being, then you are movement and your yes. your level of being is how fast you move. And so uh, the faster you move, the more omniscient you are, basically, because you can be in multiple places at once. And it's really interesting because what he's describing is like a theological level uh, theory of relativity. Like if you are traveling fast enough, you can essentially be in all places at once. Um, and you experience time differently than the people who are standing still. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing that his demigods are doing. They're traveling so fast that they experience time differently than anyone else does. Right. And it was and so, really just an interesting way to describe it. Yeah. What's his name? Um, what is our main character's name that I'm blanking on? Ransom. Uh, Ransom. I was going to say Rossum or something, oh, whatever. Ransom is trying to like set all these things in time. And he's like, so this destruction of the bird creatures happened well before there were any humans on earth. And the demigod guy's like, uh, don't, don't try to figure out it in time. It's not going to make sense to you. <laughs> like you're not right. going to be able to understand the way we move through time. And then the last line of the book, uh, the the bringing it into the present and this is like it's all happening this is real uh he says i'm trying to get it open um uh if there is to be any more space traveling it will have to be time traveling as well dot 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 exclamation point and so it's alluding to this fact that somehow our characters are going to be experiencing things that are not taking place in our time anymore yeah um yeah yeah I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's so, the concepts he's playing with are very, very science, like very, very sci-fi, but it's written so long ago that we didn't really even understand how space travel would work at the time. It's Uh, like primitive sci-fi, but in a way it's almost more impressive because it's, it's like, it's 
close enough to being accurate before we knew any of the things that now make it possible for us to have accurate sci-fi. At one point, they like um, have like a funeral procession for one of the aliens that dies, and essentially they like atomize him and, and turn him back into just like light energy. Um, and one of them, uh, one of the other humans, says they figured out how to split the atom or something similar. And this is because at that time, had we split the atom yet? When he wrote uh, this book, if we had, it was maybe. like ve- like it was very recently. Um, I don't know the publication date of the book is the only issue here right but it was if we had split the atom it had just recently happened like we had just gotten there within like a decade of this book being written so it was crazy that um he was talking about these concepts and even higher concepts and again this is like a theologian and a like english professor and a writer um not a scientist would not be well-versed in how in theoretical physics, but he's talking about how traveling faster than light puts you in multiple places at once and puts you at a higher realm. And it's just really intriguing stuff that he managed to do. It really is. Can we talk for a second about the, um, like the colonialist attitudes of the antagonists? Yes. <laughs> Cause that was something else. And it was, it's, it's amazingly like, almost prescient how he was making colonialism like like the bad guy like very very much the bad guy and yet at times even ransom is like expressing and he can only understand things through a colonial lens sometimes which was such an interesting thing that you make your protagonist or your hero of the story still part of the problematic society like he's still a product of it he still came from that and it was really interesting to watch because you can get this sense that um, like the way that these colonizers are acting on Mars is probably not far off from how people were acting when they were colonizing, you know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the Southeast Asian countries, Polynesia. And it's like really uncomfortable to read because it's just this weird, like I'm superior to you. And so I deserve to be your ruler. Yes even though the people aren't like inferior, it just seems that way. And you get to see all sides of it so clearly because you spend most of the time with ransom. Um, and he's trying to, he's barely understanding their language enough to explain why he was brought there and what happened. And he's very much the outsider being taken care of by this more advanced or at least more peaceful and more like coherent society. And Mm -hmm. then the other guys finally show back up. They bring them back in and they have such a limited, tiny understanding of the language that they think they're, or they're trying to talk down to them and talk like they're stupid, but it comes across so much that they're the idiots that can't even figure out this language and cannot uh, talk right. And so, you know, the moment when like someone's trying to explain something to you in, in a language you don't know, and they just talk louder and in shorter words they're doing that, but being incredibly condescending about it. And it's like, you're the one who can't speak the language. Like, you're the idiot. And you're seeing that from a outside-inside perspective that makes it so much more fun. Uh, yeah, and that's before the main bad guy starts this, like, chapter-long speech about how because we're smarter than you, we deserve to kill all of you and take your planet. <laughs> 
this was also an interesting thing to read for me because I think you can kind of get a sense of C.S. Lewis's personal politics in this diatribe where, you know, England has its history of colonization. And I'm sure that in the United Kingdom, that was at times a hotly debated issue. And you can very much tell that um, that uh, C.S. Lewis is very critical of colonization and how it plays out. just through that little narrative. And that was interesting because I don't know that I ever would have thought about how he viewed colonization. Um, So reading, reading a little bit of his work where he's just like laying it all out on the table and, and presenting it in such a way as you can be like, Oh man, yeah, this is, this is probably insane when it's used in real world. Yeah. I have a bunch of like quotes I've highlighted, but we've talked about most of them, but there's one point that, um, I don't know what it takes place kind of near the end, but uh, Ransom is talking about like the fact that lots of people on earth are bent and he's almost begging the demigod to like, don't let anybody else from earth come here. You got to kill the people, the guys who brought me here against my will. They're dangerous. Um, And he goes on to talk about how uh, the the big, he he says, um, I can't remember exactly what he says because I didn't save the whole quote. But he was talking about how these people are all broken. They're all uh, uh, willing to do war, slavery, and prostitution. And it's like they're, the three big evils he can think of are war, slavery, and prostitution. I was like, I don't think anyone would right. ever. Those aren't the three. Like we, War and slavery, maybe we'd throw in there. But prostitution probably wouldn't be one modern audiences would throw in as the three big evils that humanity is guilty of. Yeah, society changes over time, doesn't it? Right. I think it was also kind of fun just to look at his um, the names of things on the the planet because at times it looked like he just hit his keyboard with his face, yeah. like the, <laughs> the the name of the dwarf like beings. Yeah, the weird like it was like the fligger several fingers. Yeah, it's got like five F's and L. No, no, no. I wrote it down because I wanted to be able to specifically spell it. It is spelled P F I F L T R I G G I. Yeah, that's not a possible thing. That's like fiffle fiffle tree fiffle tree. Like what's his name? who wrote um, Cthulhu and that mythos, he tried sure. to make up names that are unpronounceable. Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Yeah. He tried to make up names that are unpronounceable on purpose. And C.S. Lewis was like, hey, hold my beer. <laughs> hold, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> hold my tea. Hold my tea. Uh, he was too cool to not have drank beer. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he did. Oh, that was the line. It was uh, the very end of the thing. He stumbled out of the spaceship walked into a pub and said, oh, I'll have a bitter, a please. Yes. And then that was the last line. <laughs> the last and line then the original, the, yeah. And oh, then he okay. went to the next one. He was like, all right, that was a beautiful literary ending for a book, but that's not the actual end. Blah, right. Blah, blah. Like, so right, much. Well, that's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Well, what are the rest of the books called? Because one of them is called Perlandia. And so that... I, it's called Perlandra, and I actually own a physical copy of that one. So that oh, makes wow. my life easier. I know. Picked it up at a thrift bookstore. And then the last one is called, I don't know. <laughs> the last one is Something. called, I don't know. That's a good, that's a good title. Perilandria. And then that hideous, that hideous strength. There you go. That hideous yeah. strength. Okay. So earth or, or Mars is Malachondria. Earth is Thacarondria or Thacal, something like Thalachondra. Thalachondra. Yeah. Something. 
which literally just means um, the silent planet. Mm-hmm. And they, they explain the solar system. Perlandria, that's Venus or Mercury? No, that's yes, Venus. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to Venus in the next book, at least. Right. Yeah. So, well, um, oh, yeah, apparently Perlandria is also titled Voyage to Venus in a couple later editions. So well, that makes that easy, doesn't it? <laughs> that makes it more helpful. Well, we will eventually cover that, but we wanted to get maybe the bad taste of Left Behind out of your mouth before we jump into some more things that will give you a bad taste. But I, I for one, know that in this episode I want to talk about the horror books, there are some that are just so ridiculous and horrible we have to talk about them. And there are some that I still will encourage you to read. <laughs> but for now... As you do. Yeah, for now, we still basically give a... As this, episode, as this podcast started as recommendations, we give an open recommendation to read C.S. Lewis. He is kind of amazing. So He's impressive. And his books are not difficult to read. He did a good job of making books that said something, but you can finish in a, in a week if you really wanted to. Okay. I have... I've got to go stop my dog. Um, we're going to have to sign off in a second because I have two dogs at the house and they refuse to eat their own food, only eat the other one's food. Um and are currently making my life an annoying hell <laughs> that I have to go deal with. Good work, dogs. Good work. Uh, it's just like they only want to do the exact opposite of what you tell them, so maybe I've got to try some reverse psychology on a couple of canines. Good luck. We'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, email us at bookreportpod at gmail.com and tune in next time where we continue this series on Christian Lit. Later, haters. Later.